Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Today, we're covering the four-part docuseries, The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. I'm joined by Joshua Zeman, the series director and executive producer. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire series and then listen on. When the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, was caught in the summer of 1977, the world believed the nightmare was over. But for journalist Maury Terry, the real mystery was just beginning. Terry was convinced that Berkowitz had not acted alone. He spent decades attempting to prove that the web of darkness behind the murders went deeper than anyone imagined. Run from me, darling. A killer on the loose in New York for a year and three days. Run, my good He is David Berkowitz, the man police believe to be the son of Sam. You better run for your life. They totally ignored the true story of this case. Run. Once they named Berkowitz, it was like, hallelujah, we got our bad guy, everybody can walk the streets again. The city of New York can rest easy. Run. There were real questions in this case. Run. Why do the police not investigate more? Run. The sketches don't add up. You're not going to mistake Run. Berkowitz for being six feet tall and blonde. Run. You got suspects dying accidentally. There were eight attacks. Did you do all of them? I did not pull the trigger at every single one of them. The worst serial killer in New York City didn't do it on his own. This is freaking huge. Son of Sam is not over. Son of Sam still exists. Who's still out there? You better run for your life. Josh, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hey, how are you? Good. Uh, first of all, thank you for embedding the incredible earworm that is Season of the Witch in my head. I cannot stop hearing it. What an incredible opening to your documentary. Yes, that is a song that has been a favorite of mine for years, years and years. And so I was like, oh, please, let's try and get this in our show. So, so excited that we got it. Now, you've been producing true crime documentaries for about a decade. Can you tell me more about your history as a filmmaker and, you know, why true crime for you? That's a good question. Um, I kind of always grew up around crime. My dad 
was a librarian for a while for Mystery Writers of America when I was a kid, and he had this library. And uh, so I would just like look at all the spines of all these books, and they were all mysteries, but I kind of liked it, you know, a, a little bit more interesting, I guess, with a little different flair. So I went for the truth. And uh, so, <laughs> so I always found the truth to be a little bit more exciting than fiction. I'm really interested in the fact that you are actually in the documentary a little bit. Can you just tell me a little bit more than we heard? I want to hear about your relationship to Maury Terry and about really the incredible access you have to his material. How did that all come about? So I had been doing a movie, my first documentary called Cropsy, which was about some missing kids in my hometown. And the film's about urban legends kind of come true. And we kept hearing while we were trying to find out what really happened to these kids, we kept hearing like people were telling us about devil worshipers and about this cult on the island that was supposedly connected to these missing kids. And we felt, oh, you know, this is just part of the satanic panic that had been around for people who grew up in the 1980s. And like the more we started to dig in, the more there started to be this truth to it like it was strangely very specific and we started to speak to a bunch of different police officers about it NYPD and they're like no 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 this is there is a chance that this could be connected to the son of Sam and there's a lot about the son of Sam that maybe you and the public don't know and I was like really why <laughs> tell me more and uh they they explained that there were a number of individuals in the police department who believed that david berkowitz didn't act alone that they had shared their information with a guy a journalist by the name of maury terry and that i should read this book the ultimate evil and so i got the book i brought it home and it scared the shit out of me like hmm. I, I, i'm not scared easy you know and this book freaked me out and so I was like, okay, I, I have to go meet this author. And it kind of happened from there. I, I went and got to know Maury Terry. He's a really interesting character. Um, my documentary is about, like, debunking conspiracy theories. And here's a guy who, like, is full-on into conspiracy theories. And so, you know, I, it, was, it was a very interesting friendship, let's just say. And but, you know, there was the more I delved into it, there was like this unbelievable truth behind what he was saying, like some of what he was saying was nuts, but some of what he was saying was full on right. That was what was so interesting to me, because I found myself as a viewer, you know, kind of closer to the beginning thinking, you know, does this filmmaker buy all of this or mm -hmm. is it ultimately going to turn out that all of it's nuts or is it somewhere in between? It's clearly somewhere in between. But don't you think that when somebody is as deep in the weeds as Maury got, that, you know, the things that he's saying that are more out there tend to discredit the things that he's found out that are actually true? Because I think as a viewer, you have that experience, too. Yeah, that, that's what I found to be so interesting, especially in this climate that we're in, right, of what's truth or not and one person's truth versus another person's truth. And that was what was so interesting. And that's maybe why I think Maury's initial findings didn't, like, change the history books. It's like his initial investigation about whether Berkowitz acted alone was spot on, you know, about the Carr brothers and stuff like that and, and just the facts of the case. But I think they were so clouded by his later 
kind of jumping to conclusions that unfortunately ruined his the early part of his investigation. And so people didn't take the whole thing seriously. Hmm. I'm wondering about that, because do you think he became more obsessed and, you know, got more in the weeds and, and found more things that were a little more out there because his early work didn't get enough traction? Was that what made him so obsessed with the case? Or do you think it was something else? You know, that's a great question. I think it's like two things. Number one, the police kept calling him a crackpot. And I think when you think that you have like the keys to this huge case and then the establishment or the police start calling you a crackpot, I think you double down. And you double down probably in the in the not so great ways. You know, Maury was so invested in trying to convince people of his original findings that I think he ended up turning people off. Hmm. And that was his character flaw that didn't change the history books, that didn't make people say like, oh, my God, you know, there were all these other factors that contributed to this case happening. It was interesting to me, too, because, you know, it's a pretty common story that we're getting to know more and more these days, uh, especially like in the wrongful conviction space about mm-hmm. cops and prosecutors just really being stuck on the resolution they got to and just wanting to close the books and move on and never talk about it again. And I think some of that's happening here. But I think also some of what's happening here is that no one is claiming that Berkowitz didn't do it. They're just claiming that other people helped. But those other people are dead. So part of me is like, were the cops just saying, well, maybe he's right, but who cares? Or or were they just really digging in on this idea that we got it right, shut up, we don't want to look bad? It's a good question. I think that there is an unbelievable amount of pressure, political pressure. I don't think we even can quite comprehend, unless you make the comparison to the pandemic, of people weren't going out. People were terrified. There was panic in the streets. You had a whole groups of people not spending any money. And New York City had already been in an unbelievable amount of bankruptcy. So, you know, they bring in this new mayor, Abe Beam. He's supposed to lift everything out of bankruptcy. And suddenly this serial killer strikes and suddenly people are terrified. They're losing even more money. They're not going out. They're not shopping. You know, all these things are happening. And suddenly, boom, there walks in David Berkowitz, smiling for the cameras. He admits to all of it. And so there's not a real huge reason to question or to dig in and say, hmm, are there other people there? That drove guys like Maury Terry crazy, you know, because they were looking for this VW and obviously the sketches don't match. And then there's questions about guns and all this other stuff. So I think there was an unbelievable amount of pressure to close this case. The amount of man hours that they were spending were unbelievable. I think the cops were exhausted. And so I... In some ways, I get it, but I don't think that would happen now. I mean, you're talking about the largest manhunt in New York City history. How do you not do post-arrest investigations into whether or not other people were involved? That's a question I have for you, because this is in some ways like a decades later reexamination of a case that I think a lot of people think they know a lot about, if mm-hmm. not everything about. Mm-hmm. As a filmmaker, like what are the challenges when you're trying to tell a story and you want your audience to learn something if the audience already thinks they know the story? Because I, I grew up thinking David Berkowitz did it. You know, I grew up in New York in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and that was always the story that I thought I knew until I watched your film. So was that a challenge to think about the viewer and how we might be know-it-alls already? 
for any filmmaker who's not thinking about that, I think it's really wrong. I think especially in crime and especially a case like this. I mean, the idea of David Berkowitz being commanded to kill by a demon dog. That is institutionalized mythology. Summer of Sam, Spike Lee's movie, everybody talks about that. So you have to go in and kind of pick that apart. And you have to spend a long time as a filmmaker kind of setting it up and then putting the clues in for people to kind of like slowly pick that apart. And you can't just tell them because that's not funny either. You have to go in and like set it up. And so what I tried to do in the first episode is give all these clues where you're like, oh, I see. Oh, like you're showing me that. Oh, and you're letting me come to my own decision that maybe these things aren't right. What's really cool as a filmmaker, if I approached all this archive footage, which has never been seen before, right? And so you get this cool archive footage and you're like, okay, well, let me put piece together this storyline from the perspective of maybe it's not just David Berkowitz. Suddenly the footage takes on a whole new level of drama. Like you could see it. Like you're like, oh my God, look, there's Geraldo Rivera saying, what if there were two killers? You know, like, did he know this or was this a rumor that was going around? It's supremely fascinating. Now, you do in the film address the way this case really like put a crimp in, kind of altered the landscape of journalism. Can you just talk a little bit about that and and why that was an important storyline for you to include? Yeah, it's I didn't even know it, to be honest, before kind of delving into this case that the son of Sam basically kind of changed and created tabloid journalism as we know it. And that was really fascinating to me. When the Son of Sam case broke, there was one of the biggest tabloid wars between the New York Daily News and the New York Post. New York Post had just been bought by Murdoch, and he kind of brought in a new style of journalism. And this is where Murdoch really realizes that fear sells. He realized it and learned it during the Son of Sam case. And I I think you know, it wasn't just Murdoch, obviously. That's where a lot of newspapers realize fear sells. But from this, you start to see tabloid journalism, like just very a few years after you start to see the rise of like Current Affair and Geraldo and all this other style journalism that had kind of come out of this pressure cooker situation, if you will. Do you think that a viewer like me, um, is it fair <laughs> that for me, Maury, as a journalist, is, you know, his reputation for me as a viewer, as a journalist, is a little bit eroded by his part in that early version of Current Affair and Geraldo. I mean, he Mm -hmm. didn't know what Mm -hmm. it would turn into, though, when he was on those programs, right? Yeah. Well, again, like, as a a journalist, like, to me, that's why it's a cautionary tale of true crime. You know, I like, I think in some ways, Maury Terry made a deal with the devil. You know, he wanted to get his story out there. The cops were calling him crazy. Nobody would listen to him. And he only could go to the Geraldos of the world. He could only go to the current affairs and the Maury Poviches of the world. And they were the only ones willing to look at his case, you know, seriously, if you will. And so I think that that made very interesting politics. And of course, it probably ended up additionally hurting his legitimacy and the way in which, you know, we're supposed to view his case um, factually. I'm curious about the construction of Maury's narration. Was it pulled from passages from notes? Was some of it scripted? You know, for some parts, I thought it might be from his book. And there were other parts of the narration that were clearly post-publication of the book. So what was all that material? 
That's a good question. A lot of it was from the book. I would say about 90% of his book. Some was from letters from Maury. Some was even dialogue that I, Maury had said to me, like his, his anger about certain things. And, you know, I recorded some, some of our meetings, my meetings, my early meetings with Maury and kind of just, I, I can hear his voice in my head right now, yelling, <laughs> yelling and screaming and raving and ranting. What was your personal relationship with him? Like how much time did you spend talking with him? Oh, years. Years, you know, it was it was complicated. Uh, you know, he had always pushed me. I approached him because I wanted to adapt The Ultimate Evil for a fictionalized TV series. Hmm. And he was always pushing me to do the documentary. And there was this little voice in my head said, mm, I don't know if if people are going to believe you with him kind of at the helm because of the way he was always pushing and how emotionally invested he was in it. But looking back to him as a character, that's super fascinating. As a guy who felt that, I mean, look, imagine if you felt or you felt that you knew the keys to unlocking one of the greatest true crimes in history and people would not believe you. That would drive you crazy. Yeah, and it's a fictional trope, too. I mean, we see this over and over and over again in, like, bad movies or bad totally. books. Like, the cop with the case they can't let go. The journalist who ruins his life because of the story that no one believes. Like, that's a fake thing. But in this case, it was totally real. I'm, I'm curious, when you were talking with Maury, I mean, I'll, I'll be completely transparent with you. Watching yeah. the documentary, especially the earlier parts, I was like, my bullshit meter was, like, going bing, 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 bing. Did that happen to you in the real conversations? Or were you able to sort of kind of get what was true and what wasn't true, what maybe, like, were you able to navigate that yourself? Um, yeah, I think so. It was, I was able to navigate it very easily early on. I knew who he was kind of walking in the room and sitting with him. And I knew because I had been there in some respects on my own, like I had been down a lot of rabbit holes in my own work. So I knew, and I, and I was like, oh, the, he's too far, but what he's looking at is right. And it really didn't lock in for me until he passed away, number one, until I saw the evidence and until I spoke to all the other police officers who were like, no, 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 no. This thing is real. You know, Maury was not the best advocate for his own, you know, investigation, but this thing was real. Tell me what you think and what they said was real. This was a debate I was having with my husband, Kevin, as we were watching it. I was mm -hmm. like... Yeah, but that seems to be true. But that seems, and Kevin was like, but how do we know? Because his, it was the same thing where, you know, even the, the DA from Queens, you have other people saying that he's nuts. Like, tell me what you know to be true, if you don't mind, just giving me sure, like a sure, list sure. of the things that are like mind blowing things that you know to be true. Well, first of all, a DA in New York City does not open up a case unless there is some Correct. hard core evidence. That is not going to happen. A DA is, anywhere does not do that. A DA anywhere, you know, and, I, and I've known a lot of DAs, but a DA in New York City in Queens is not going to open up a case like this for some kind of publicity. There has to be some good reason. I have since spoken to a lot of investigators in that case, and you brought up a point earlier, not to diverge, but you were like, well, what's, you know, like a lot of the guys are, are dead. What's the point? And I think that was why a lot of this kind of didn't come out in a lot of ways. But let's just take, for example, looking at both the VW, which was a car that they were looking at quite a bit, talking about all those different sketches. I mean, there is a sketch from from one of the shootings, uh, two girls sitting on the doorstep. The girls hadn't been out drinking. They were not sitting in a car. 
a guy approaches them and says, excuse me, as about to ask for directions, turns around and shoots these two women. These two women give literally the same sketch. The only difference being the guy's hair is parted on one side and the guy's hair is parted on the other side. That sketch looks incredibly like John Carr, incredibly like John Carr, and looks nothing like David Berkowitz. Additionally, left-handed, right-handed, Berkowitz is left-handed, John Carr is right-handed, things like that. So the sketches, um, the car is dying mysteriously. Um, it's can just... I can I tell you the thing that blew my mind? Sure. Because sure. when when I heard that I first heard the words satanic cult, I was like, oh, bullshit. This exactly. is so n- not true. Right. Then <laughs> we we see the park. We hear the cops saying they found dead dogs. Like we he- and we like get corroboration that at the very least. There was a group of kids and people gathering in that park doing some sort of what they believed was a satanic ritual. And, you know, immediately, you know, the that era, the old era of satanic panic, which I would love for you to talk about, like my sure. immediate reaction, you know, as a true crime author, as a journalist was like, no way. But then it turned out to be based in truth. There was that group, Right. That's the whole thing. For somebody like myself who likes, A, debunking conspiracies, and B, is totally into satanic panic. Think about me. What happens when I'm sitting here and, like, I'm like, no, this is satanic panic all over the place. And suddenly <laughs> suddenly they're like, no. They're... I even thought the cops were like, I was like, how can you have New York City Police Department guys who are totally buying into satanic panic? And then I start to look in. And I'm like, oh, my God. There's, like, some real truth to this. This is wacky, you know? And and the question is, is, like, is it satanic panic and, like, you know, 1980s guys saying, like, you know, McMartin trials, like, this grandmother is a witch, you know? It's not that. It's just a bunch of crazy people who believe in the devil, I guess, in, in, in this respect. Or we're using their belief in Satanism or we're just using straight Satanism as a guise, as a smokescreen to, like, engage in a lot of really bad behavior. Yeah, it's an excuse to act out. It was like exactly. a, I mean, clearly the cars had a very troubled life. Uh, it sounds really like. Troubled. It also is amazing to me that they connected. You know, you have this kid, Berkowitz, who obviously is very troubled, and these brothers who are very troubled. They were neighbors, and they seem to have connected um, and done some stuff together. Doesn't that seem like like an unbelievable convergence of plot lines there? It's like when you start to peel it back, you're like, okay. Berkowitz is a guy who, you know, he's, you know, socially awkward, probably doesn't, quote unquote, score a lot with girls, as they would have said back then, you know, and suddenly the cars are these kind of really messed up kids. And, you know, it's like, oh, Berkowitz will do it. You know, give the gun to Berkowitz. He'll do it. You know, and so I think it's just a group of like really screwed up kids in the neighborhood. So you talked before about, you know, your own skepticism about this story. Mm-hmm. Maury was telling you he wanted to make a documentary and you were like, no, <laughs> this is like too nuts. It's going to be fiction, probably. What was it that made you change your mind about this, you know, potentially being a documentary instead of a, a fictional narrative? Well, it was when Maury Terry passed away and he had basically given me all of his files And I started to look through the files and I started to see the tapes that he had made with David Berkowitz. And I was like, okay, now I think in retrospect, we can look at this. And I also think it's a cautionary tale of true crime because that's Mm. Maury had become so wrapped up. He had fallen down the rabbit hole. He had spent 
40 years looking at this case, smoking like unbelievable, you know, like not taking care of himself, just obsessive about this. And I was like, so not only can we make this story about his investigation, but we can also kind of teach people because as somebody who's been there, you know, people have told me like, dude, you're, you're too deep in it, you know, step back. Probably editors have told you that, right? I mean, I've we've written, my husband and I have several true crime books, and it, I know the rabbit hole. You turn the page in a case file, and you're like, oh, shit, this is going to be a whole chapter. And then you write that chapter, and the editor is like, no, like, no one cares about that. That's not interesting. <laughs> right. It's interesting to only you. But yeah. it also seems like Maury was very good at evading, in some ways, the editorial process. Like, he... If one paper didn't want his thing, he'd go to another paper with his thing. And we hear from editors in your film that talk about him being, like, incredibly difficult to work with. Maury was insistent, but I didn't buy it. I thought the story was too thin, too unsupported, too speculative, and nothing he sold me or tried to sell me was working. But he wanted to see my boss, and we all met in the executive editor's office Maury could be so convincing. Maury should have been a salesman. <laughs> we did a, um, a re-release of The Ultimate Evil and with a company called Quark, and they're great. And we're like, oh, we have to re-release this book because it's so interesting to me reading The Ultimate Evil. It's both scary, but it's also like an experience because you feel Maury, the writer, going down all these rabbit holes and kind of getting lost. You know, and so for me, it's an experience. And I was like, if Maury only had an editor (laughs) in this book, like the history books may have been changed. Like Maury Terry was like, he was a smart guy, but he went down the rabbit hole. He was pushed. You know, the police called him a wacko and he doubled down. He must have already had some kind of obviously conspiratorial tendencies there. Uh, to go where he went. But I think he also made a deal with, he he made a deal with the devil with tabloid journalism and he made a deal with the devil with satanic panic. Basically, in some ways, like here's a guy who feels that he's got the keys to the greatest mystery. He tells the world, the police call him a crackpot. Suddenly satanic panic comes along and says, wait a second, I'm going to listen to you. I think he knew that satanic panic was full blown, but he also played the role because he knew it would help people get to the truth behind the Son of Sam case. But again, Mm. I don't think he knew how hard he would be painted with that satanic panic brush. Right. He couldn't have predicted that the satanic panic would go to the place it went and be completely debunked later, right? He couldn't have predicted that. No, and I think in some ways he thought finally he would be justified. I think he believed some of it, but I think... I also know like when people are like, there are 2000 Satanists in the America today, like he's turning around. He's like, no, that's not true. But I'm just going to ignore that and try and tell everybody about my case. You know, right, right. Imagine if he had stopped early in the game and had an editor and didn't put any of the kind of satanic stuff or or where it gets too crazy. Um, You know, he might have been able to convince people of, of what he had originally uncovered. That was my question for you. Where should he have stopped? Because it sounds like the park gatherings were true. Uh, It sounds like were the Carr brothers definitely Scientologists or not? I mean, does that matter? Like, where would you have drawn that line? That's That's a great question. For me, I think it would have been like, 
hey, Berkowitz didn't act alone. Hey, there were like maybe three or four other shooters. Um, they were all hanging out in Untermeyer Park. There was some kind of satanic kind of inkling to it, but it was probably just a bunch of guys who wanted to engage in bad behavior and use Satanism as an excuse, a moral excuse to do it. And probably would have ended it there. Yeah. I think I would have ended it there, too. I think drawing, trying to draw the lines to these, like, murders that happened elsewhere, trying to draw the lines to Manson, trying to make it look like a global thing. I mean, as much as I love a Scientology conspiracy more than anyone, um, that I can imagine, especially at that time, is not something that people would have swallowed. That's, I think there's a lot of stuff that people wouldn't have swallowed back then. And it's so interesting to me about how we're in, like, a cycle almost with satanic panic coming back around again. Like we're in a new satanic panic. Talk but, about that. Well, I mean, look at what's happening now. I mean, with the QAnon stuff, like we are in a new satanic panic and um, it, it just blows my mind because I never thought we would have seen it again. I never thought people would have made such inconceivable leaps in logic that they are making now. And then backing it up with kind of Satan, like, what are you talking about? Like, do you not know that like, it's just an excuse to do bad behavior, you know? And by the way, I want to divorce that from Satanism as an actual legitimate religion. Cause I know a couple Satanists and you know what? They're pretty damn cool, you know? Yeah. And they're, they're smart people, you know, they they're just not, don't want to shooting people on lovers lanes. Right. No, nor are they, you know, lighting pentagrams, and, you know, killing dogs in parks. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, so let's just, you know, state that there for the record, please. But in times of fear, people do this. They use Satanism as as a scapegoating. Yeah. All you need is a kernel, right? Mm-hmm. I always think about this. I always think, like, were it not for the Jeffrey Epstein case, would this, like, pedophilia Q thing have taken off so much? Because there's a kernel there. There's a rich guy who actually was doing these things. And in this case, there were dead dogs in a park and symbols on rocks. So there was a kernel. And that's enough sometimes, right? Well, that's the funny thing. You're absolutely right. It's a kernel that grows and people don't know when to quit. Just like Maury needed an editor. (laughs) The world needs a filter. You know, (laughs) the world needs to know when to quit and pull back. And that's our none of us have that. You know, that's that's probably our, our biggest issue. And so, again, that's part of this cautionary tale of true crime. I've been in the true crime world for a long time. You know, whether it's missing kids in Cropsey, whether it's you know, the Long Island serial killer case, you know, or whether it's, you know, weed in in Murder Mountain. And, you know, I think we always have to be evolutionary in true crime. We always have to be telling a different story. And so I watch all these shows on Netflix. I love them. But also we need to look at them through a lens of responsibility. And we also need to know that, like, your next true crime obsession isn't always the greatest thing. You know, it could be dangerous, you know, because... I've spent weekends going down rabbit holes. Imagine spending four decades going down a rabbit hole. Uh, you're speaking to my life's mission, my podcast. That's what we do. We look at true crime media and we try to be the like, don't do that. Yes, do that. But it's hard. People are going to love what they love and they're going to get into what they are into. Um, I have a really specific question for you because sure. there's something that like I just want to hear more about. And it may just mm-hmm. it may require you to recap a little bit of this for me. Yeah. The Arliss Perry murder. Mm-hmm. 
How did Maury get on trying to solve that? And how <laughs> how was it that he ended up being right? Can you just explain that to me and maybe remind the listeners sure. about that thread in the documentary? Sure. Well, so basically, Maury gets a letter from David Berkowitz. Actually, it's sent to somebody. And, and in it, David Berkowitz says, I know who killed this woman, Arliss Perry. Arliss Perry had been killed in a horrific satanic, quote unquote, satanic crime uh, in the late 60s um, in Stanford. Uh, she was a newlywed. Uh, she had had a kind of little spat with her husband. She walked into Stanford University Church and basically she didn't come out and the police found her kind of ritually killed in a, in a very tragic and horrific crime. Gruesome, yeah. In a church. Um, so it looked at the time like it was a satanic crime and Maury finds out that Berkowitz says, I know who did it. Uh, a gentleman stood up in a meeting that we were having and said I was the one who was involved. Maury then kind of went and, and really dug into that crime. He did so much work uh, looking at it. And it just so happens that Arliss lives 30 miles from where John Carr, who was one of the people who is allegedly a shooter in the Son of Sam case, killed himself with a shotgun. And there was this kind of um, satanic crimes going on there. Maury believed that it was a guy named Manson, too, who we don't cover in the series for good reason. But Maury also believed that he had help, including this security guard. and mm, Crawford, um, right? That's correct. Yeah, Crawford. Yeah. So Maury, so Maury all the time is like, Crawford's involved, Crawford's involved, Crawford's involved. And at the end of the day, we find out that Crawford is involved. Uh, the police had finally, after apparently a long time, connected his DNA to Arliss's murder uh, to the scene mm. of the crime they go and they you know knock on his door and you know he shoots himself and then they reveal that in the closet is a copy of the ultimate evil now it becomes the perfect microcosm of this case because mm. does that mean that he's involved and maury was right or does that mean that he killed arliss and he's going to collect any book that mentions the murder that he's involved in. Which one is it? So that's why it becomes the coda for the film and kind of the perfect thing. I was wondering about the book and its role in some of these conversations because mm -hmm. I know that some of the conversations with Berkowitz happened after the publication of the book, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so part of me was like, did Berkowitz just read the book and he's just he knows what Maury wants, so he's just telling him what Maury wants to it's hear? It's a good question if, it, if we didn't have the letters that came before the book. I mean, the letters right. are very, he's like, look, you know, you, you saw my apartment. It was, <laughs> it's so amazing because you said it earlier, you were like, this project is like trope central <laughs> you know mm -hmm. you've got the journalist who's like obsessed even Berkowitz himself mild-mannered postal worker lives alone you know they go into his apartment there's a bed on the floor and you know holes in the wall like and part of the irony here according to Berkowitz is like of course it's tropey because we wanted it to be that way and everybody hmm. fell for it right off the bat like I didn't you know, if you look at the holes in the wall, they're all written with the same magic marker. If you look at the holes in the wall, you'll see the plaster chips on the floor. Like, that just happened two days before I was going to get caught, you know? I'm not saying I believe hmm. all of it, but I'm just saying it's fascinating how, if they were going to create 
the ideology of a serial killer that it that it works. And somebody was like, oh, if you actually look at Zodiac, like it seems like they took a lot from Zodiac. Yeah, it does seem like he was playing a, the character of a killer. Yeah. And that ten and that what that does is it makes you doubt everything that Maury thinks because you're like, is Maury being fooled by this play acting that Berkowitz is doing? And, you know, is he believing it as truth? I was really stunned to see that interview tape of that long form interview he did where you have the other TV journalist being like, I watched it. And I was like, what are you doing? Was this the cult group itself that was responsible for the Son of Sam murders? Or was there something else that went on here? Oh, there was another, another group, a more elite group hidden into it and woven into it you know the process you're talking about the process cult from britain yes right 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 you're saying then and this is really astounding that process leaders were among those gathered at the time when the plans were put into effect to commit the 44 caliber shootings yeah I was the same way because he yeah. was. It would be like me asking you. Yep. So, Josh, uh, for lunch you had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? <laughs> it was sort of like that. Well, but here's the interesting thing, and not to, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Do it. Maury always never wanted Berkowitz to say something. He would always show a picture to Berkowitz and want Berkowitz to confirm it because he didn't want to be prejudicing. So what we see is, you know, we see like, is this the person? Yes, that's the person. So it, it it's interesting because there's all these different setups. And that's why I think this is such an interesting case because you have all the facts, but it's still the in some respects, the facts don't matter. It's your perception. And that's what becomes so interesting in, in these kind of discussions of quote unquote true crime. You know, right. I get into this right. argument. A lot of people like I can have all the facts. I can spin the story a thousand different ways and, you know, it still doesn't matter. It's what you believe. Right. And that is the genesis of 100,000 terrible podcasts, right? Somebody like <laughs> making a making a right and going in the very wrong direction. Don't and, go there. I'm calling it true. I'm just curious about um, your personal take. Sure. You, say you have say you do have, you know, a meter mm-hmm. and you have to give a percentage to the veracity of everything that more in Maury's material that he believed to be true. Mm-hmm. Can you like estimate for you like how much of it you buy? Like like 25 percent, 80 percent. Do you know? Sure. Thirty seven percent. It's very specific. <laughs> <laughs> but in that 37 percent is Berkowitz not acting alone. Hmm. So you're 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 sure of that yourself? I believe that David Berkowitz didn't act alone. I have to say, I think the very compelling thing that points to that for me were the original letters. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just so much in there. Does that? I have a, a stupid question. The handwriting in all of these correspondences do, <laughs> are they all the same? No, <laughs> because I no. I found myself wondering, did the car? It seemed like the cars may have written those original yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, Jimmy yeah. Breslin letters, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we don't go into it the series just because it's such a rabbit hole and there's only so much. But like the cops said, oh, the second letter looks nothing like the first letter. And the second letter, like the the penmanship was so perfect. And they were like, it looks like it's comic book writing. And they went to like Marvel and they went to DC and they asked these people like, what kind of writing would you say this is? And the guy's like, well, it's an illustration studio. Well, Michael Carr, the son, had opened up an illustration studio and registered 
car illustrations in 1976 at his dad's residence. Oh, my God. You know, oh, my God. It, it's, so, like, I wish there were all these things we could put in. Jimmy Breslin says to a, a, a journalist named, I think his name is C.J. Sullivan, writes for The Post. I read an article. Says to him, whatever drugs they're giving Berkowitz in prison, they're, they're working because I got another letter from him. It was completely different from the other letter that I got. <laughs> I was like, or oh my goodness. could have been the Yeah, there's a reason brothers. why. Yeah. Exactly. The idea is that Berkowitz wrote the first letter and not the second. The, the cards wrote the second letter, you know. Right, um, right. It's just very different. The language is different. The first one reads like, bang, bang, my name's Mr. Monster. And the other one is like eloquent and, you know, smart and... You know, somebody playing the role of a serial killer. I mean, that's, that's what it, it reads that's like. The joke, me, right? It's, it, it's somebody playing the role of it. I mean, if you look at the, it's like, welcome, hello from the gutters of New York City. Like nobody fucking writes <laughs> like that. You know, I can't write like that. And and if you look at it, by the way, it's like, hmm, hello from the gutters of New York City that are filled with blood. When you get a chance, watch Taxi Driver. The most popular yeah. movie of 1976, especially for New Yorkers. It's like right. right on the money. You're like, these guys watch Taxi Driver. They wanted to mm. make the most creepy serial killer letter that they could. And so they that's what they did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely reads a little bit like when a child fakes a note from their parents and gives it to their teacher. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> trying to sound like an adult. So they give it to like the New York City police and the New York City police are like, oh, my God, this is horrific. <laughs> Mm. You know, we, we've got a monster here. You know, that's what yeah. I think happened. I mean, and, and that's the problem is these crimes were depraved. These guys, to some extent, were depraved. And, you know, in the in the use of the word that's used to describe, you know, criminal behavior. But they were playing it up. So it it gave the police a very convenient thing to hang a hat on and then made the arrest even more sensational because they weren't just like we arrested a guy. They were like, we arrested a monster. Yeah. And it's like. You know, what I always say, it's like the funniest thing in the world. It's like in the letter, it's like, I am the son of Sam, Papa Sam, Papa Sam beats me, puts me in the attic, blah, blah, blah. Like there's all these references to, to Papa Sam. I am the son of Sam. The other letter is signed Sam's creation. Uh, and it's like, and you don't even interview the literal sons of Sam who lived yeah. across the street. Like you don't right. even interview them and they're like no 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 he admitted to it why would we interview it you know exactly our, our job here is done if there's something else here besides the inescapable danger and lore of where true crime can take a person <laughs> uh, is there something else that you want viewers to take away watching this documentary about a case that happened all these decades ago careful about the narratives that are created careful about the narratives that the press create or that you, even that the police engage in and the press create, because there's always other letters, layers. And, you know, I look at this case and, you know, more is like, I can't believe it. I, you know, how could they have done this? And I'm like, I was like, that's China, that's Chinatown, Jack. You know, that's just the way it is, you know? And, and so I, I think we are all complicit in the stories we tell you know, especially in the true crime stories about why people do certain things, about what the reasons are. And of course, be skeptical, do your homework and all those other things. But just more and more, I find myself questioning why the press tells the stories and, and how they do it, you know. Hmm. 
Well, the film is The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. Josh Zeman, it has been so much fun to talk to you about this documentary. Thank you so much. Thank you very much as well. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director and producer Joshua Zeman. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Nail Bomber, Manhunt. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.